we're always striving for this thing with women where, you know, is this point where you can have it all? Well, the answer is you can have it all. You can't have it all at once and there'll be tough days and there'll be days where it just doesn't work. So I think that's, you know, really important and maybe that's one of the things that the awards kind of really reflects as well. Like when we tell our stories about our lives, that's what we're reflecting. For all the other women out there who are listening, you know, whatever's happening in your life today, it's okay. (laughs) And it's going to be okay. But, you know, tough days happen and you'll get through them. G'day and welcome to episode 73 of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Lalouve, and this week on Friday the 15th, we're celebrating International Day of Rural Women. As part of this and next week's Rural Women's Awards, which are being hosted online on Wednesday the 20th, we're sitting down with a couple of previous winners of the award to find out what led them to apply, what actually happened when they won the award, and where they're at now. And before we jump into this week's episode, I'd like to acknowledge the Camilleroy people and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And I would like to extend those respects to the lands on wherever you may be listening to this podcast. So joining me today on this virtual panel is Sue Middleton from Western Australia, the 2010 national winner, and Joe Palmer, who is the 2019 winner. And... Next week, she'll be handing over her mantle. Joe, I, I want to jump in and start with you. You've had a, you've had um, your recruitment business running for the last few years now, but um, this year particularly, there's probably no better time to be in recruitment for agriculture in rural Australia. So this is the serious part of the conversation. How have you managed this year? You've obviously had a bit of homeschooling as well with the kids, the scaling of the business. How, how's the juggle been? Uh, interesting, I think. I think it's been a, what's so hilarious is where that the Rural Women's Award fitted in with this is like winning an award like this for in 2019, pre-COVID, where everyone's like, oh, that's a cool idea. Yeah, right. Remote work. And then literally like six months later, everyone's like, holy hat, where was your crystal ball last year? I was like, I know, right? So it's, um, it's been a really interesting one. It's been interesting in that like for the whole concept like this is this the change that has happened globally in the last 18 months two years has like steamrolled everything in the remote workspace like a generation I reckon that this is the the change that's had to happen from levels all levels of government through to corporate small businesses like everyone's had to change how they do things and me chipping away at this without a global pandemic, I was always under this illusion of like, yeah, you know what, like I'll change some mindsets, like things will happen. And then I was like totally underestimating how much work it was going to take to get people to actually take this seriously um, on scale. And that's literally been served up with a pandemic to have it happen. So as far as the concept, it's been so incredible and what that's meant then for the crowd that I advocate for, which is the regionally and and rural based people, like they've just had it, the access made for them. Like you, you really, that argument now that that doesn't work has been thrown out the window. And I think it's just given so many more people the confidence to negotiate different arrangements with their current employers and be really confident to apply for jobs that are Metro based or just 
opening businesses to so many more skill sets into their organisations because they've had to set up remote or hybrid for their um, their own businesses and current employers. So it's been awesome. For us as a business, has been really challenging because I probably for the first six or eight months was like getting emails daily like, holy hat, Joe, this you just wow, you must be killing it. Oh, my God. And I was like, oh, my God, like everyone in the world has freaked out. No one's hiring. Um, no one is running events. Like so we pretty much had our revenue turned, like switched off all of our income. So all of our events got cancelled. Um, people stopped hiring and freaking out about like how do we even hold on to our current stuff, let alone grow a team. Hang on, how do I hire someone if I don't get to interview them in person, let alone have them come into the office? And so behind the scenes for us, it was a really actually pretty scary um, time. But I know that I just had to sort of like write it out and whether or not we sort of crashed and burned out the other end of it, then that was something that I was willing to take the hit for if this meant that we had the global change that we have. Yeah, it's um, I interviewed Georgie Somerset a few months, oh, a few months ago, a few weeks ago, I'm not sure, one of them. Everything's the same these days. Uh, and I can't believe she's been working regionally since the late 80s. I was like, oh my God, how on earth is, like now it's just, the norm and so much is going to be possible from it. But I love love that she carried a fax machine everywhere. It's so hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. I actually had to Google what a fax machine is. Hey, I've lived before fax machines. That's my grant. That's my claim to fame. We used to post things back then, not just buy online. You used to actually post letters to each other. Well, we used to send faxes in our, um, like when I was at boarding school, in our school holidays, we would send faxes to our friends in the holidays. <laughs> I remember the fights as a, like, as a child with the siblings when it was someone wanted to make a phone call, but we were using the phone line for the internet and just the, yeah, the fights that would ensue from that. But so for you, you've um, been living over in the West and you, you're juggling, the, there's the citrus business, there's the pig business, there's grain, and then you've been a busy person with what you're doing. How do you, if I was to meet you down um, at the local pub or cafe, how would you, (laughs) how would you explain to someone what it is you do? Yeah, look, um, I try and kind of condense it down because otherwise it it does end up a bit complex. But I say to people that I've had a 30-year career in regional development and even though um, I'm both from a farm, I'm originally from Chinchilla in Queensland and I'm from a farming background, And my kind of goal I set for myself at age 22 was to ensure the prosperity of rural and regional Australia, a very daggy career goal for a 22-year-old, can I just say. But it's sincerely, I've got actually got the CV it's written on, so I know that I said that life purpose for myself. I obviously had done a workshop or something where someone said, yeah, to have a life purpose. Anyway, so um, then everything fell out of that, Ollie. Everything's been very purpose-driven for me. I came to Western Australia my late 20s and just fell in love with what was happening in rural community development over here. Came over here, eight months later, met Michael and became part of his farming family. So I kind of, um, you know, I've, I've had both worlds. I've had my professional career and then I've had my farming career. We've done the citrus development. We have since and quite recently sold the broadacre part of our business and then also the piggery part of our business. So we um, are focusing more in on horticulture now and then that's also then freeing me up and giving me more time for what I call the other part of my life, which is all my leadership work. 
where I really have this um, quite sincere belief that, um, you know, I guess that I have this opportunity to be the person in the room who understands the grassroots, who can articulate what's happening. I can articulate the problem and I can help solve the problem and I can bridge communities and governments and I can explain the space in between and map out for people you know, any kind of an organisation, it might not be government, it might be like a rural development corporation or it might be, you know, a CRC, I can map out or it could be a not-for-profit, I can map out what it looks like to change a problem. And mostly I find um, when I get into those rooms, people are really sincere about wanting to do something, but change is hard. So I help people to map out change processes. And that's then kind of led to where my business has gone and I'm now in business with my stepdaughter Liz Brennan in a business called AgDots and what we do is we help people do that stuff in, a, in, in our areas of passion. So Liz is more in the kind of the food um, side. She's really interested in that and I'm really interested in ag tech, obviously gender equity um, and then I'm really interested in kind of um, a whole myriad of spaces but you know stuff that helps build the capacity um, of farmers so yeah it's it's um, it's a good life Ollie because you can always just pick one part of it to describe it to people so if I was in the cafe or in the pub and we were having a beer or you know probably for me more likely a, a fantastic Western Australian Shiraz or Chardonnay um, I would just pick one part of that and and, um, you know, and I'd probably actually be more interested in talking to you because you know what it's like. You find your own life quite tedious because your own life is just a set of jobs, isn't it, really? It's a job list, whereas other people's lives and experiences are fascinating. And I guess, you know, that's probably what you do with this podcast. Now, I'm interested. As, um, as a- hey, it's Nick here, sheep farmer and Rabobank Regional Client Council member. I'm passionate about supporting our local community so we can improve community wellbeing and build strong local economies. My job as a client council member is to help secure funding for regional grassroots initiatives. Those that support education in ag, rural health, sustainability and help bridge the country city divide. We've helped organisations like Boys to the Bush, funded school field days like Ag Vision and held succession planning workshops, just to name a few. If you have an idea to make a difference to regional Australia, go to our website at www.rabobank.com.au and nominate via our community fund. We'd love to hear from you. 22-year-old though, like what was it about you that kind of came up with that goal of, yeah, growing regional prosperity? Like there's, I don't think, maybe there's more 22-year-olds thinking that way now, but that's... um. I know it's pretty daggy too, isn't it? But no, I think I have. I think if you were to describe me, not at the pub, um, I, I am terribly earnest at heart. Um, I think it's that rural background. My dad was a mayor, and so I grew up experiencing local leadership and just had always seen it. It had just been part of life. When there was a problem in our local community, dad would ring the minister, and and solve it and so I think I just grew up with this sense of you have control over your destiny and you have power over your community's problems so for me I just think I assumed that that's what I would do that I would get on in life and you know I'll tell you this is quite hilarious though so I had set out I laid out a plan and so I went okay at 22 I'm going to go and make sure rural and regional Australia is prosperous by 30 I will have finished this goal 
because by 30 I will have solved it. This is this is really truly absolutely how the plan worked. And at 30, I'm going to go work for the United Nations because I need to solve world hunger then. <laughs> and the really funny thing is I'm still actually back on the first goal and I didn't quite solve it by 30. <laughs> And that, um, yeah, regional prosperity was just like the tiny little bit like here's, here's going to be the hobby on the side and I'm going to do a couple of other things. I still want to travel and then I might just jump across into Europe and, and go. I know. Just, yeah. I know. It's so dorky. But yeah, well, that makes you feel like sounds so much more human when you're like, oh, that sounds like a really great goal. But the fact that you actually I mean, thought you were going to, to actually draw a line in the sand on a date with it. Yeah, I might you're just. You're a dork. That's right, because the United Nations will clearly want me by 30 because I'll be so amazing by 30. But I do, I do think that that's how you are in your 20s. You know, you're bright-eyed, you're bushy-tailed, everything's possible. And you kind of <laughs> you get to 30 and you're like, ooh, these kind of wicked people problems are a little bit harder than I thought. Do you know, it's so funny that you say that because I'm always so impressed. And like you said, Ollie, I think that it that people at 22 are actually taking a lot more holistic view at life. They're actually doing a lot more navel-gazing and, um, like, literally... I chose a degree that I could like have, I did a teaching degree because I had 12 weeks of school holidays every year that I could travel with. Like <laughs> mine was very like Joe centric, but Joe got to do the things that Joe wanted to do. And like, I don't care about world peace. So uh, 20 Joe in her twenties was not particularly um, all that um, driven or focused, I must say. But what I've actually found quite a frustration that was a frustration for me, but the more sort of women that I talk to, especially people, women in rural areas, is that I've had this sort of frustration in my 30s is when I finally felt like I hit my straps and I know what I want to do and I have that purpose thing and I get it and all of the things that I want to do are now clear, but I've got these kids and these little kids that are so time-consuming and are a, um, who I, I love dearly, don't get me wrong, but the thing is that um, they put everything into like chugging along at second gear and you're doing a half-assed effort at everything, like the nothing has got 100% of your time. And I've just found that to be something that is really hard and then at the same time makes you realise when people are like, it's so impressive when women are doing things because they're doing it with at max 50% of their time. I want to jump into the rural women's work because you're both talking very much about similar things, come, overcoming challenges, but in terms of the, the self-belief to go and particularly throw your hat in the rings for these different awards and programs, et cetera, that exist. Um, so yours, you were a finalist in 2010 and Joe in 2019. Did it take someone coming and pushing you off a ledge to go and throw your hat in the ring or was it something that you, each of you got to a, a point where you're like, actually, I reckon I'm, I'm capable of doing that and I'm just going to go after it myself. Yeah, I was pushed. So my experience, Ollie, was that I got pushed for years and just pushed back at everyone because I was like, I don't want to do that. I've got all of my other stuff going on and I'm not interested. And then what got me over the line was that they give you a bursary for a project and I finally got to the point where I had a project that I wanted to do and it was really well aligned to what AgriFutures at that time was Rudic. 
and it was about commercialising biogas in the piggery industry and they were doing work in that. So I went, well, I've got the right project now. So that's why I applied. And then when I won at Western Australia level, I was like, oh, my God, what have I done? Like, <laughs> this is not, this is kind of not what I was expecting. And then when I won at the national level and kind of my life, you know, disappeared for the next 18 months, flying around the country, doing 55 presentations, being the poster girl for rural Australia, I was like, this is not what I was expecting. And I actually had to get, like, I could only describe it, I actually had to get myself together pretty quickly because I wasn't ready at the time and it wasn't what I was expecting. Um, and so for me, it was something that people had said, you should do this, you would love it, you'd be great for it, but I'd really resisted it. And so that was kind of my story. It's so interesting because mine was a really different sort of coming to it in that I um, when I started Pointer, I had no money to put into it. And actually a girlfriend of mine in Ireland who I'd been on exchange in the US with when we were like 21, so we've stayed friends over these over the years, she actually said to me, she's got a, a sister that lives in Australia who'd married an Australian and um, had started a business, and she said, what she had always done to get eyes on the business was apply for competitions, apply for awards. Like that was her marketing strategy to get her business, to get her customers up and running. And so mine was a very different take. Mine was a really strategic, okay, how do I um, get eyes on this business? Um, and so, look, I didn't apply for the Rural Women's Award straight away, but I, I applied for some awards when we'd only been going for about six weeks and we were a finalist in like one of the Regional Australia Institute um, awards. We then did um, our local business chamber awards. Like all of those things were very um well, it was strategic. And I would talk, I was only just talking in a workshop a couple of weeks ago about that word strategic and women are still really, like it's got such dirty connotations that go with like like strategy and leveraging and those sorts of things. And that's, I try and really use them as much as possible in a way that um, I hope doesn't make it sound like it's conniving or doing something like um, for at, at someone else's expense. But um the rural, the rural Women's Award was hilarious in that when I was like, okay, good, I've got this nailed down. And, again, it was once you could actually have a project that I was like, okay, this part of the business is something that I can actually apply for the Rural Women's Award. I didn't even get an interview <laughs> the first year I applied. I was like, oh, ouch. <laughs> so I was like, I have to wait another whole year for this one. So when people um, have reached out to me being like, oh, I, I didn't get an interview or oh, I got an interview but didn't get any further, I'm like, definitely keep applying because literally the year before I didn't get an interview even at a state level and then went on to win the national award the year after. So um, it was, yeah, very different, different to Sue. But what also I think that people like Sue made a lot of, noise and gave a lot of feedback, I think, to Rurdick and then to AgriFutures, but also rallied a lot more of the alumni to talk about the reality of it, because that I think a lot of people found themselves in Sue's position where they were like, 
what has just happened and my life has literally just exploded and I feel that they've put so much more support around that but also make it really explicit to people as they're applying and going through the process like this is a game changer and I will definitely vouch for the fact even that though I then the world shut down not long after I got mine and I didn't get to do the jet setting um it has been a game changer personally business wise the whole lot um but I feel like people are going in a lot more eyes wide open than you Sue nowadays I look back when I did 2010, it just didn't have the profile. And one of my bits of feedback at the time was the brand wasn't high profile enough for what they wanted to achieve for rural women. Um, and so in my year, the person who was runner up was Alana Johnson, Jono from Victoria, and she worked just as hard on the eastern side of the country. She did as many presentations as me. So we did, we had this, they had this massive step up in the profile of the awards um, around about that time and then in a couple of the subsequent years. And I think that um, it was really great to see Rudick and then AgriFutures grow through that process as well. And I really like the way they explain the awards now. Back then it was really much described as a capacity building process for women. And we, you know, just said there is no way any of the women coming into these awards do not already have an extraordinary level of capacity because, as Joe said, there's all of those different things they're managing in their life. They're doing it without support structures. They're doing it without teams of people. They don't have EAs. You know, they don't have organisations behind them. These are amazing women. So let's get the language right. And um, but you know, to Rodex credit, in the year that I won, there was so there was no media support. You know, I hired my own media person to um, work with me just to help me kind of manage the the this is the deluge of requests. Um, the day I won at the national level, we had to run two phones, so my husband ran the other phone, and I physically did not stop doing interviews for three days. And we got to the end of the third day. I actually didn't fly home from WA. I stayed in Canberra because I couldn't afford it to be on a plane for five hours because I would have missed things. And so um, it was like um, kind of just managing that first onslaught really then gave me an idea of what it was going to be up for. And I then started to resource myself pretty quickly because I could see where this was headed. Um, and Rudy, to the credit, gave me a research. And um, I said, I'm not going out there to talk on really meaty topics about rural and regional Australia if I do not have facts behind me. And so I said, I need a researcher because I have got to, you know, I've got to capture a narrative for what's happening across the country. And um, I can't do that and maintain, you know, the kind of the schedule of events. So um, that was what saved me. Victoria Taylor came in and um, she just helped me build my presentations. And, you know, that really helped build the profile of the awards. And that's when it works is when it kind of is mutual in that way. And, and that's what I really love about the awards now is it's far more supportive of the, of the women. Um, it understands what they're going to go through. Um, and it really helps build women's visibility because one of the things you don't understand before you do the awards is that it's just a gender thing. There's not really, I don't know a hell of a lot we can do about this, but women aren't visible. So we can't see women. We can't, and, and it doesn't matter how capable you are and it doesn't matter what kind of things you're doing in your life, you are not visible until you make yourself visible and that's what this award will do. And then what I tried to do once I realised that and I was kind of like, wow, I've gone from, 
you know, being invisible to now every single person in the country is ringing me, wanting me to do something with them for them or, you know, um, you know, uh, make something happen in their space is I just tried to farm those opportunities out to other women and I built a network behind me as fast as I could to say, well, I physically can't cover this, but can you make this happen and can you make this happen? And, and it just became that network that I then built um, really then was for me the kind of the, I guess it was like this light bulb moment where I went, that's actually what the awards is about. It's about this opportunity. It happens to one woman, but if you share it and you create opportunities for all the other women, then, you know, we all grow through this process and every woman wins. I, I just like whilst it was big and it was tough, I'm forever grateful for it and I couldn't have got this experience any other way. The AgriFutures Rural Women's Award National Announcement is being held virtually next Wednesday, the 20th of October at 12.30 Eastern Daylight Time. You can find out more in the show notes or by going to agrifutures.com.au forward slash RWA to register. I've got a question for you, Sue, on on yours. Um, and and jumping in, so like obviously you let in with the role of um, basically yeah, greenhouse gas emissions within the pork industry. Was that parked very quickly because you took on this plethora of building pros- prosperous regional communities? <laughs> look, look, the reality is I couldn't do my project in the year because it just took off and I really just became, you know, a speaker really for a year. But then what we did is the year after uh, I went to Europe um, and um, America and we looked at um, every different type of biogas technology um, and looked at how the piggery industry was going to be able to reduce its emissions. So my big driver at the time was that, look, to be honest, I was kind of surprised we were still talking about global warming and hadn't done much about it. And that's quite hilarious because that was in 2010, right? Um, and it's now 2021. This is what I was thinking as I was reading your bio. I was like, my God, what have we done in a decade? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but let me, let me tell you, the pig industry has adopted this technology and has reduced its emissions 70% as an industry. It is actually the industry that has the greatest reduction and greatest pace of reduction of any ag industry. It is an, an unknown but amazing thing that has happened. Now, it's not right for every um, piggery. It, uh, the tragedy for us is that there is actually no affordable technology because we run an outdoor unit and so we have, you know, um, pig shelters and so what we gather out the back of that is um, like a waste product which is pig poo and straw mixed together because our, our pigs grow on straw. And so it wasn't right for us because what you have to do to turn that into power and then the fertiliser that comes out the back of these systems is you have to macerate it, basically put it into a biodigester and then you can produce those products. If you have an indoor piggery system, all of that waste flows down into a pond, you cover the pond and then you capture the gas and then from that gas you then produce the power, you clean the gas as well um, and then you can produce heat from it, which is really useful in sow housing. So to cut a long story short, um, a year of work, um, a year of talking about it as well. I then, you know, went on to talk to other industries, including dairy, about the potential for this. 
it didn't work for our system. But what we did then work out was that we could reduce our emissions by then, uh, which we already were doing, we, but we just did it at a far greater pace by then um, processing that product at the back of our piggery and spreading it onto our paddocks. And we got a yield increase from it and we increased the carbon as well. So it was... It's a really interesting journey, Ollie, and it wasn't. I didn't land where I thought I was going to land, which was we would have been um, uh, owning a biodigester and running a biodigester. But for us to do that would have been another really big business and with a substantial amount of risk. And it's not really. It's nailed in Europe, and it's nailed in Europe because there's other drivers around reducing odour and also using all waste because they don't have enough land to spread it. It's just like it's it's just a really different set of drivers over there. Um, and in Germany, for example, because of the subsidy of the EU was providing 70, 17 cents a kilowatt hour for energy and our wholesale, you know, price you could get for energy at the time when I did this was 7 cents per kilowatt hour. But at 17 cents, you could run a biodigester and at 7 cents, you couldn't. So it was just like the kind of the economics went there in Australia, but you then go to find, you, you know, you, you kind of work your way through it as all good farmers do and you figure out the system that will work for you. But in the meantime, the piggery industry adopted the technology and has been an absolute leader in reducing um, emissions. Wow. I think you've touched on an interesting thing there, Sue, as well. Like, well, I think that if you pay, like how you can measure what your role in that change, I don't know if you can, but I'm sure it has some very large impact on it. But I think you touched on a really interesting thing there is that your project that you actually went into the award with like spat out quite a different result than what you went in. And I think that that's something that people often think when like, well, I don't really... Like I'm, I, they're quite fixated on it being some way and they don't realise that it will evolve. Like same with us. Like I thought that we would have sort of just a tech platform that sat in into our, our website to sort of offer some training and upskilling and things. And it, like we then had a pandemic that meant that it became our core business was training people to not balls up remote work like we had government organizations government departments ringing us small businesses um a law firm in melbourne with 800 staff that was paper-based that got sent home within 24 hours that they were like ah <laughs> like things like that so it became what made us not sink off the end of things when everyone stopped recruiting but that um that that was like ugh, the, you know the buzzwords the pivoting it, it the fact that that stuff had, had sort of started ticking away in my head was like, okay, right, I'm ready to roll and this is just where the, the whole business is going to go, not just my project. Like that literally became what I was making money and paying wages out of. Yeah, and for me, Joe, like my kind of where it all led to as well because it didn't stop there for me. That project happened. I spent this massive amount of time talking about this in, in one industry, but I then went on to, I guess, become... Like I got braver and more courageous around um, talking about climate change because I realised that actually climate literacy was really low and that we were still back. I mean, this is so difficult to remember. Back then we were still at the stage where the first predictions had only really started to make sense. We were starting to see off summer storms or, you know, we've lost our spring rainfall or we've lost our early rains, WA. 
So all of that stuff was only just starting to bite as well. And so once um, those kinds of changes start to actually appear in your farming system and then appear in your budget, you start to go, I need to think about this. And so people take a while to get a hang of it. But actually what we've done in the last 10 years, all of the United you know, work of everyone who's been in this space in um, Australian agriculture is that we've moved substantially. And now we've got a net zero goal by 2050 and NFF has signed off on that. And that's a massive achievement. And um, I was um, one, of the one of the founders of a group called Ag Zero 2030 in Western Australia. And we formed a couple of years ago and everyone's like, who do you represent? What group are you? And we're like, we don't represent anyone. We're just a movement. And that kind of way of thinking, you know, you wouldn't have done it 10 years ago, but all our goal is is to positively message that agriculture can do this, you know, because there's this whole thing about, you know, and if you look at some of the political messaging at the moment that ag should be excluded, well, it's just ridiculous. This is an opportunity for agriculture and it's an opportunity not just because you might participate in, you know, the carbon industry at some point in time. It's an opportunity for you to improve your farming system as well because that's what it does. So when you get your pig poo at the back of your pig shed and you put it on your paddock, it improves your farming system because it improves your yields, it improves your productivity. So um, there's just... Um, so much kind of grist can come out of your project that you don't know at the time. And I think what's really interesting about your point there is, so it was like the project which you came firing in on is actually not the one which kind of gave you the platform to then see that project become a success. Uh, and interesting what you're saying for, for Joe there around like the passion and actually a business. And Joe, you were mentioning before that it was fairly strategic and quite calculated of using the awards to help build the profile of your business. But like once you, when that moment, when you put your, your business out there to be critiqued by other people, what, what was that moment like? Because once it's out there, it's either like, okay, I've, I've put it out there and it's an awesome idea. Someone else is going to take it or I better pull my finger out and get moving. Um. I haven't ever sort of been worried so much about someone stealing my ideas. I'm a massive oversharer at all times. And I, I think that like, if it's a good idea and more than one person wants to do it, then more people will get to benefit from it. So I've never been worried about that sort of side of things. What I found this constant internal sort of um, friction, I guess, for me was the fact that why can't the biz? Why do I even have to do this award thing? Why, why, why does why can't the business itself be enough of an idea just to talk about it? Why does it have to be that it's because it was founded by a woman, founded by a woman in a rural area, founded by a mother, founded like why does every photo have to have me with a kid on the hip and the paddock in the background? Like why can't the fact that um, businesses everywhere can get really awesome people to work in their business and make it more profitable and then in turn that person has access to a wage that makes their family more secure and they spend more money locally like but then I sort of I actually got told by a friend like get over yourself like think about how you make purchases or the decisions that you make of where you spend your money if you've got two products and I'll use us as an example you've got my 
competition that you can imagine one of the major job boards that's a, a, a global, well, in a lot of countries around the world that most people will post their jobs on in Australia. And then you've got Pointer. Why do people choose you? Well, have a think about how you shop. If you were looking at two different things, do you go for the faceless machine that has no personality that, yes, will probably get a result, but you um, you have no connection or no um, sympathy or you don't have like a feeling of like some sort of social change or benefit to others will happen. Well, then you've got this one where, oh, that's cool. Like, look at that chick. She's got like young kids and she lives on a farm and she's running that business. And I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I totally I totally would buy my product. And so I was like, that was a real shift for me. But in those early years, I found that to be a really frustrating tension for me. That why why do I, Joe, why does Joe have to be the story of Pointer Remote and why it's a good idea? And then as soon as that switched happened, I was like, oh hell yeah, like pimp me out. I am quite happy to go and talk. <laughs> this. I know as soon as I get to talk to people about it whether it's in person on a podcast like in a with a journal or whatever they see how excited I get and like it's I know that it's contagious because they're like oh my god I know like five people that are my friends that should register with you and then actually someone in my town's hiring and I can't go anywhere now without getting at least people like three people signing up as a job seeker with us and getting a job in like that's just how it happens and i have totally embraced that now well i've got i've got a question for both of you um livability of regional australia things are starting to open up and by gosh i hope it stays open this time um is it is it here to stay this yeah ability to get people out into the regions or or are we facing a real danger that the default is going back to these centralized hubs and the way things were is now the time we need to put the, the pedal down and really push for the opportunities in regional Australia? You need to put the pedal down and push really hard, Ollie, because we actually, whilst the opportunity is here and tipping point could come, we actually have a number of problems we have to solve. And I'll just give you one really quick example, digital connectivity. We're gonna, if we're gonna do all of these amazing things, live from anywhere, we're gonna have to dramatically improve both quality and then also reliability of um, digital comms. And at the moment, we we really don't have a national plan for how we would do this. And that's just one example. I could pull out a whole range of infrastructure categories, you know, that would also be an issue. We need to be working on these both at scale and then at local kind of place-based efforts. So my answer is yes, but it is not time to take the foot off. It's time to put the foot on. Mm-hmm. I have a little different response. I am all for you, for for your comments around the connectivity. Obviously, that's something that just needs investment at all times and it needs just to be getting looked at all the time and reassessed and um, invested in and all of those things. My concern is what it looks like with an actual physical decentralisation of people from metro areas to the regions. I my concerns are around healthcare. My concerns are around housing and housing for um, vulnerable people, older women, Indigenous, those with a disability, um, with money being so cheap at the moment from the bank that 
idea of buying your weekender is so fabulous. And I'm look, I, I think it's a, a wonderful place that we're in that people can afford to do that and things. But it is creating enormous social issues in country towns that I just. I'm not anti, but I just feel like it really needs to be in the mix. And what also happens is when you've got a lot of, especially those towns, the sort of that that three-hour radius from your big metro centres, is that sort of almost shell town where all the houses have been bought for people to go and have the weekend, but then they get the shits because there's no one, none of the 15-year-olds can afford to live there to then work in the coffee shop to make your coffee when you go for the weekend. So there's that ability for people of a variety of demographics to be able to live in places. And you know what it's like when you go down to the coast and those sleepy little coast towns, like that's cute for a bit, but like having every single house bought by someone that doesn't live there, that the community side of things really does suffer. So for me, there is some real sort of social and infrastructure things as well around it, but very much for the people that are already here, that connectivity thing and what is so incredible is that like now that organizations are really realizing that this distributed thing does work that they're just the amazing economic opportunities it has putting big wages into families like I said families um, that are in a in a town that is having more challenging weather things there is less spring rain there is all of these things, if you've got a really constant, reliable off-farm income or um, not even just on-farm businesses, anyone that's in the supply chain or anyone that's in a, a rural ecosystem, if you've got supplementary income that means that people can still live there, you've got all the benefits of having the footy club not folding and you've got volunteers in the netball canteen and you've got enough kids to keep the primary school open and someone wants to buy the pub and keep it open because there's more money coming in. And that doesn't mean that people have to physically move there for more money to come in just give the people like that live there already access to a decent salary and they'll stay there and they'll spend it locally and I think that's where we've just got huge huge amounts of opportunity Mm. for sure god I hope uh hopefully surely these (laughs) surely the regional (laughs) thing can keep up Yeah, and I guess, and it's always really important to note that I'm talking to a a specific demographic as well. Like I, and this is why it's really interesting, like a plug for a friend of the show, so um, Gabrielle Chan's book um, about Rusted Off. I found that a really interesting, um, really interesting education for me around um, I'm talking quite often to a tertiary qualified professional who can access a six-figure job from their home with good internet and all of those things, there's still a lot of people in rural Australia that my business isn't appropriate for and isn't, I'm not solving any of the challenges for the diesel mechanic in Walgett that can't find an apprentice. Like that's, that's another whole challenge that me and my like, 22-year-old Sue wanting to save the world, My, I get a bit like, oh, okay, well, we could do this and this. Would. And then I have to really rein myself in and be like, stick in your lane. Like, this is where you can do things. But um, I'm also very aware that I'm talking to a very specific demographic in rural Australia. And I think that that's something worth noting 
And um, that was something that was just really interesting reading Gab's book about just that those sometimes a parallel universe in the same tiny little town. And I think that that's something really interesting to note as well, because I think quite often that demographic I'm not talking to, they're the ones that, like I mentioned earlier, they're the ones that are going to really suffer when their housing prices are just booming in their little town or, um, you know, just access to services and not enough beds in the hospitals and those sorts of things. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, hand on heart, a bit of an idea of what the Rural Women's Awards are, but speaking with you both, you've opened up a whole yeah, area of possibility of what it can can give to not just the winner, but I think finalists. And even if it is like you, Joe, applying and being knocked back and going, crap, actually, I'm I'm not at the mark. And even just becoming a finalist in these awards and pulling together an application is such an achievement and a learning curve. But do you know itself. what? Even looking at my application 12 months later, I was like, this is rubbish. <laughs> I was like, I nearly didn't apply because I thought, what if the same person reads my thing and they're going to be like, oh, this twit from last year. (laughs) (laughs) Went on spark notes or something. (laughs) Thanks, Sue. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Thanks, Ollie. Well, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I love how... Sue's approach to the awards was going in with a big problem that she wanted to solve, which actually ended up getting parked. As you heard, Joe was slightly more calculated, looking at growing her business and using the award for exposure as part of that. Both women have been so fortunate to be previous winners and they've started to pave the way for what next week on Wednesday the 20th will be the 2021 announcement. As you heard earlier, you can find out more in the show notes below.